0: You're listening to audio from Harden Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardenbaptist.org. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And we're going to let uh, King Solomon open up with our introduction during our time. So as you get there, uh, the words will also appear on the screen. We're going to look down. At verse um, 16 of chapter 3, and here's what King Solomon says. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there is wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed... And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Father, I pray that you would help us to reckon with these observations. That so much that we see in the world is injustice. So much that we see is filled with oppression. Let us understand how do we see you... In light of how the world is. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we think about these two questions, what I want to ponder is, how can God be good if the world is bad? And that's sort of what King Solomon is leading out with. Hey, I'm looking around the world, and what I see is injustice, and I see oppression. And the conclusion for us to think about, maybe you've had those same thoughts. Like when I open up my news app, when I'm scrolling social media, when I'm just going to work and having family dinner and going to Thanksgiving, what I often find is there's just a lot of problems. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of evil. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of just things that that, that aren't the way I think they should be. And who should we talk to about that? Like when the world is broken, as we feel it in our own lives and in the world at large, who do we talk to about? Who do we complain to? And if we have a Christian worldview, the obvious answer would be, well, okay, God, if you made this and it's all kind of really bad, then who are you? Are you a good God? If the world we hold and walk on and correspond in... It, it, it's broken. It's bad. We, we, we feel it. We see it. We hear it. It doesn't seem like this is a good place. So is there really a good God who made this? Or could it be that the one who made this is actually not all good? In other words, does a bad world prove a bad God? The way we feel, the way we walk through life, does it mean maybe God is not as good as we thought he is? That's kind of the the angst in King Solomon's soul. Hey, I'm looking at the world, and I'm seeing it's very broken. What do I do with all the brokenness? So what we're going to walk through first is that idea of, okay, if the world is bad, how can God be good? And so if you have your Bibles, we're actually going to walk through the end of chapter 3, and then we're going to hopefully walk through all of chapter 4 as we sort of wrestle with these questions that— King Solomon is asking. And he doesn't always give us the answers, but the Bible certainly does. So we're going to get to some of these real questions of, hey, life hurts and it's broken. Can God still be good? So notice what we just read in verse 16. It says this, Moreover, I saw under the sun. Now, if you're new with us, that term under the sun, it's repeated all through Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is one of those kind of strange books in your Bible, um, meaning that you got to have some lenses to see it by. So King Solomon is looking at the world under the sun. He says under heaven sometimes. What that means is he's going to sort of take God out of the equation for a minute, not as like an atheist but he still believes like God created the world. But what if we sort of set our biblical worldview aside and we sort of just leave God out and we look at the world just for the world's sake? Can we make sense of the world as it is apart from God? And so this idea of under the sun, it's, hey, when I see, when I take God out and I just look at the world, I find some problems, And the first problem he finds is injustice. Notice what he says. That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So he's kind of going into like the court system of his day. And he's looking and he's saying, you know, when I look at these court cases, I find that the innocent also often are are made guilty, and the guilty are often made innocent because of who they are and how how much they have and and who they're connected with. So he sees sort of just even in the court systems just of the world, it seems like those who are connected can kind of do whatever they want. Those who are not connected, well, they're not going to get away with much. And so he feels this like this injustice, uh, he feels that what all of our kids feel and protest to you. Hey, mom, that's not fair. Have you ever got that for with your kids? Dads, have you ever heard that? Dad, that's not fair. And what do you automatically respond to them? Yeah, son, guess what? Life's not fair, right? It's just like, yeah, I know. Tell me about it. I've got complaints too. Who do I go to, huh? Your granddad? I don't know. Who do I talk to? Life is not fair. You know what happened at work today? Let me tell you, kid. Like, we're all sort of mad that life doesn't work out, that when we do right, we often get wronged. And when someone does wrong, they don't often get what's coming to them. And in fact, really, when we think about like other people, like we usually demand justice for those who do wrong to us. But then when we do something wrong, we want like grace. Or like when I do something wrong, I want grace and mercy. When you do something wrong, I want you to pay for it. Because we see the world, it should be just. So he's, he's, he's crying out. I mean, there's this idea of in the place of justice, there is wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there seems to be unrighteousness. There seems to be just wickedness. So, so our question is, okay, if the world is broken and unjust, then how can God be good? And the first thing I just want to point out, even in his decry, that his decry is really an apologetic to the fact that God is just. Because if you think about it, what's his complaint? The world is unjust. There's wickedness instead of justice. There's wickedness instead of... So his complaint is the world should be what? Just. The world should be fair. And it shouldn't be wicked. It shouldn't be unrighteous. So all of us... No matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, we all as humans believe the world should be fair. The world should be a place where right is right and wrong is wrong, wherever, however you define that. We've got all our own definitions of like what's right and what's wrong. But your definition of justice, everyone should be in that form of justice because we all sort of believe the world should be a fair and just place. Whatever your view of fair and justice is, we believe the world should be like that. It shouldn't be unjust. It shouldn't be filled with wickedness. That wicked people should pay and innocent people should have a good life. Well, why do we feel that way? In other words, if you take God out of the equation, there's no reason the world should be just. There's no reason the world should be good if we take God out of the equation. Because if we're all sort of just accidents, that we all just appear here, and we can all define our own realities, then why is it not that injustice is the normal And justice is the abnormal. Why is it that wickedness is applauded and innocence is a vice? Like, see, the the, the reason Solomon is decrying, I want the world to be just, is because he's made in the image of God. And he has a long memory back to a garden where a good God made a good world. And guess what? All of us have that same long memory. We all know deep in our bones that we're made in the image of God and that somehow this world was supposed to be good. It was supposed to be better than it is. So our cry for justice, it doesn't point to our God is bad. It actually points to our God is good. He is just. That's why we want justice. But something has went wrong. And that's why every worldview, if you think about any worldview, think about Christian worldview, secular worldview, atheistic worldview, whatever worldview that you hold or your friend holds, it has to really answer four questions, like every coherent worldview. Those questions are, um, how do we get here? What's wrong with the world? What hope do we have? And where's it all going? Those are the questions that every worldview has to answer. Like, how did we get here? We have an answer. God made us in his image We have other worldviews that say, well, we're just accidents, it was a big bang, this sort of just happened, we're all just here, we're all accidents. But even in that worldview, an atheistic worldview has to answer this question, what's wrong with the world? Because atheists are not saying, well, hey, the world's actually perfect and great. No, uh, they're like us decrying the world is broken and something's really wrong. So even an atheist worldview has to answer what is wrong with the world. Every worldview has to answer that. So my question is, why does every worldview have to answer that question? Why does every worldview have an answer to that question? It's an apologetic for God is good. Because we know something has went wrong. We know something is broken. That's why our outcry for justice, that's why we have it. Because we know that wickedness shouldn't rule in the place of what's good, right, and true. So even his looking at the world and thinking the world should be good actually points to a good God. And that's what we need to make sure that we know in our longings for goodness and justice. It's pointing to the fact that God is actually a good God. So he comes up with some reasonings. So here's his reasoning in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every manner and for every work. So he concludes, hey, the world is, there's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of bad things that are happening to, to even people who are, who are doing well. They're not getting what, what their labors are, are, are fruitfully earning them. There's just a lot of bad that's happening. And a lot of people are getting away with a lot of things. And he says, well, here's what I've concluded, that there's a day coming when God is going to judge both the wicked and the righteous. That there is a day coming when God will judge the world. So here's his conclusion. Yes, things aren't always gonna work out right in your life and at work and in your family and in our culture and in the world. There are some really bad things that are happening, but our cry for justice will be appeased because God has fixed a day when he will judge the world. So what that means for us as Christians, We don't have to make all of the wrong that happens against us right. We can actually trust God and leave all the wrong done to us into the hands of God, who is going to judge those who do wrong to us in the end. We can leave it to the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, what we see in Amos Chapter five, twenty-four. it says this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, that's how the way the world should be, but it's not the way the world is. And that's Solomon's crux. The world should be just as flowing like water, but it's not. But Amoson says, but it's coming. It's going to happen, and what we see is in the New Testament, Romans chapter 2, 16 says, on that day, that's the day of judgment, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man by Christ Jesus. See, for some of you, you are troubled this morning because you see that coworker that gets away with everything and never gets caught, and you know they're doing things wrong, and it just it breaks your heart, it makes you angry, and you're saying, why doesn't the world make sense? I'm working hard with integrity, and she is doing all of that, and she is rising through the ranks, and I'm not. We, we, are, we are outraged because things aren't working. Life is not fair. And Solomon says, that's what I see. But he concludes, you know, what I do know is even though I'm looking out from the sun, there's a God above the sun. He's going to judge everything. So in one sense, we can leave the judgment to the Lord. We don't have to take it upon ourselves. And then he also says, not only is God got final judgment so we can rest and trust in him. But the second thing he says is that the wickedness and injustice, it actually leads us to resolve a few things. Um, number one, that we are really like the beast, and so just notice, just uh, look down with me in verse eighteen. It says this: I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they might see that they themselves are but beast. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantages over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. That's a a quote from Genesis chapter 3 after the curse of Adam. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So he's saying, what I see is because of this wickedness and injustice, I know God's going to judge, but right now when wickedness prevails, it is testing man, the wickedness spreading upon the earth. It's testing man so that we would see that we are like beasts. Now, now, what does he mean by like beasts? I don't think he means that, that we're like uncontrolled animals, though, I mean, it's kind of like that sometimes, but that's not his main point. His main point is we're like beasts in the fact that we too are going to die. I mean, what happens to animals? They they live and they die. What happens to us? Well, first of all, we were made in the image of God to live forever. Adam and Eve were supposed to live forever, but now because of sin, at Genesis 3, after the fall, what does God tell Adam? Hey, you came from the dust. Now, because of your sin, you're going back to the dust. So sin reveals and shows us that we are going to be like beasts. We also are going to die. That we are also going to be like beasts animals see for us we are we're we're sort of separated from death in our culture like like it's just a natural fact of like modern culture like we go through mcdonald's and we get a happy meal and we don't realize there are some unhappy things that happen before the things get in that sack like things died and we don't see the death we don't see the blood we just see the happy meal it's like cheeseburger where'd this grow out of well honey let's just move on here here's your toy squeak it there's like, un, like just things that happen that we don't like to see. We don't like to think about death. But right now, we're in a few weeks where uh, deers are like going crazy because a rut is happening. And all of us vividly see death all throughout the roads. Like you have probably passed many roads coming here where a dead deer carcass is laying on the side of the road. How have you seen a dead carcass uh, in the last few weeks? Yeah, it's like everybody, right? And so Solomon is saying, hey, when you drive your car and you see that dead, rotting carcass and you get to everyday passing, it's a little bit like more vulturized and it's like it's like just disgusting, right? You're like, oh, it smells. Hey, that's you. That's what you're going to be like. Like we're going to put you in a grave. We won't see it, but that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to rot in a grave. That because of sin, because of wickedness, that's our fate. We are just like the beast. They got breath, we got breath. They die, guess what? We die. So, so today, when you see that dead deer carcass, I want you to think this thought. This is what Solomon wants you to think. That's going to be me. I'm going to be like that in the ground. I'm going to rot like a deer. I mean, me, made in the image of God, value, dignity, and worth. I'm going to rot in a grave just like a deer. That's what he wants you to feel. He's saying, like, like what advantage do we have? I mean, <laughs> what advantage do we have? We still die. That's, that, that's his point. And then he kind of asks the question, that like, we're not even sure if, like, animals go down and we go up. And it's sort of this, like, very, like, heretical statement. Like, what are you saying? That, like, he's just pondering these deep questions. He's angst. He's looking at life under the sun. Let's take God out. Let's just reason with, hey, if we die like animals, we're not really sure what happens in the end, and he raises a question that I want the Bible to answer because I think it's a beautiful question. Verse 22 says this, so I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for this is his lot. Listen to this, who can bring him to see what will be after him? In other words, all the injustice that you see, all the sin that you see, A, I'm dealing with it, God says, but B, let it remind you that that sin is leading you to death you're gonna die just like a deer carcass. You're gonna rot in a grave. And this question is, who can come after and tell you what's gonna happen next? That's just like a hanging question. And if I'm in the back of the room, I'm like, Solomon, I got this one. Hey, Solomon, right here. I, got, I know, I know the guy you're looking for. I know him. And Solomon's like, okay, weird kid in the back. His name is Jesus. He's the one who can answer this question. He can, at, he can answer what's coming next as we go into a grave, just like the animals do. So, for instance, read in John eleven twenty three. 23, we see this. Jesus said to Martha, now Lazarus, his friend, has been dead for four days. He is a rotten deer carcass. Blood, yuck, smell. Okay? Martha comes to Jesus. Here's what Jesus says. Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again after the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So the world is unjust. There's a lot of bad things happening. It is not fair. But God's got it, and he will judge the world through Christ. And guess what? Because there's injustice, we all die. Because we all share in that injustice. You have done things that are unjust. You have done things that are wrong and wicked. Therefore, you will die and rot like a deer carcass. And who knows what's going to happen next? Oh, Jesus does. And Jesus answers for us what will happen next. That if we believe in him, if we put our trust in him, the death will not be our end. We will not just die like a deer. We will rise to new life and live with him forever. That there's this hope in the midst of all of the injustice and all of the wickedness that we not only see, but we also participate in. See, in one sense, we want God to get rid of all the evil in the world. Well, guess what? That means he gets rid of you. If God stops the evil, he stops your heart because your heart is pumping some of that evil into the system. You are part of the problem. So God kills you if he gets rid of all evil. But he's got a better plan to get rid of evil without killing you, but giving you life, eternal life. See, Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the one that's going to come after you and show you what is going to come. And it's by believing in me you get the gospel. So we see that, yeah, the world is broken. We're going to die. But through Christ we will live forever. He's got another angst about the world. Notice what he says in, in chapter 4, verse 1. Again I saw all the oppression that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was one, and there was no one to comfort them. So, number two, we have oppression without comfort. So there are people that are oppressed and they are without comfort comfort. And he sees this, that, that all of life, you can see there are, there are people in power, and rather using their power for, for good in the world, they're using their power to exploit others, to become more powerful, to have advantages. And he said, I can see this. And by the way, he's like the kings. So he'd have been like part of this. <laughs> and he's seeing and he's like, this is not good. That all people should be should be equal and we should love our neighbors ourselves and we should be for each other, not against each other. And so he's decrying the oppression that's happening all around him. And I just want to first of all point out that his, his noticing this points to the reality that God is actually good, even though the world is broken. Because without God, there is no issue with oppression. I mean, let's just be honest. If we believe that evolutionary biology is true, that we're all just accidents, it was a big bang, and we're all here, and the reason we're here is a thing called the survival of the fittest, then oppression is our highest good. That's what we should do. You should try to oppress others around you so that you and your family will win. It's completely normal if God is not God and we are just here for our own selves. See, it's only a problem if we have a God who made all people in his image. That's the only reason that oppressing another human being would be wrong. It's if God created all people in his image and all people have equal value, dignity, and worth. That's what becomes a problem. Without God, there's no problem. We can just fight and do whatever we want. And whoever wins is the best. And whoever loses, well, they lose. Because of survival, the fittest and the weakest are going to die out. And that's perfectly fine. That's perfectly normal. But no one believes that. No one is like, yeah, that's how the world should be. Everyone is against oppression. However you define it, however you see it, there is some way where in your mind, okay, this shouldn't be. We all know that, that in some way that everyone should be treated with value dignity, and respect, we know that, that there shouldn't be people who exploit others. We fight against that. Why? Because we have a good God that made a good world even though we find it broken. So because we're angry with exploitation, it actually points to not our God is bad and He made a God, he made the world bad. It means our God is good and he made a good world. And we have a long memory to a garden and we have a long memory to the way things should be, though they're not right now. And we long for that. We yearn for that. And it points to the reality that God actually is good. If you think about even Solomon during his day, like he would have seen, just the, the, he would have remembered. I mean, think about just his own people, the, the Hebrews. They were slaves in Egypt. Like he could remember very vividly, hey, his forefathers, they were made slaves. They were forced to make bricks. That other human beings are oppressing other human beings for their own advantage. I mean, we can see in our memory uh, the European and American slave trade, where human beings were treated as property. They were exploited. They were oppressed for another's good. And we can see even right now, right now there are more slaves on planet Earth than at any other time in the history of the world because of human trafficking, one of the evils in our time, that human beings are, are sold as property right now in, in our time all across the world. We see that this, this, this oppressor is oppression. We can see even, even right now in uh, Russia and Ukraine, we can, we can think about the, the Ukrainian people who are going to, some of them freeze to death. Why? Because we have an oppressor who is oppressing. We, we can see this, and our hearts decry, God, where are you? I mean, all throughout history, we can see bad things have happened, and people have exploded people, and we ask, okay, God, where are you? If there are little girls who are being sold, God, where are you? If there are people in Ukraine who are going to die to death, God, um, where are you? If you made this world and you're in charge of this world and people are oppressed and there's oppressors, shouldn't you be coming and like doing something? Like, can you feel Solomon's heart? Can you feel your own heart? There's some real brokenness. And if God is good, why is the world so broken? Why is the world so the way it is? And think one thing we've got to see is God is not absent in the midst of all that we see in the world. And we can even think back to the example of the Hebrews in Egypt. God heard their cry. And what did he do? He sent Moses. And Moses redeemed the people. And we can see through history Christian heroes like William Wilberforce who stood and helped abolish slavery. We can see heroes like Martin Luther King Jr. who stood up and saw that all people be treated equal with dignity and rights and values. That we can see right now, athletes like Tim Tebow, who love Jesus, who've made a lot of money, and have a lot of influence, and have made nonprofit organizations and spends his money to fight human trafficking right now. That it's not just there's oppression and God's not doing anything. God is sending comfort and he's sending comfort through his people that actually care. See, one thing we see about God in the New Testament, he actually sends the comforter. The Holy Spirit, our our advantage, our our paraclete, our, our comforter, our aid. And so we get the comforter in our hearts, and then we go and see those places where we see things that should not be, and we work to alleviate those things. Whether it's in our family, it's in our work, it's in our wherever we go, we are looking for ways because we believe the world should be a place where we love our neighbors rather than try to exploit them. So we see Solomon is decrying this idea that we just see oppression. And what he says is, basically, verse 2 is this, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than all who are alive, but better than boast is he who has not yet been born to see the evil that is done under the sun. So basically, the oppression is so bad that I see it's better for the dead. It's, all, it's actually better for those who haven't even been born yet. Like, it'd be better to not be born than to live in the world filled with injustice and oppression. Again, he's feeling that under-the-sun weight of, okay, if we take God just out for the moment, we see that people, we don't do so well. We, we don't live so well. What we really need is, is the Lord's justice and the Lord's comfort to come upon us and to help us. So the, f- the first thing we see that we really wrestle with is this question. If the world is bad, how can God be good? And so hopefully we've answered these questions by saying this, because we're mad the world is bad, it actually reveals God is good. Because if God's not good, there's no anger that the world is bad. Like bad should be normal. Bad, there's no reason it's not abnormal. Injustice and oppression, who says those are bad things? Oh, God does. Because God is just and good and holy and he is for the oppressed and he is opposed to the oppressor. That's how we know those things are good. That's why in our hearts we feel anger towards those things. It's because God is good, though we live in a bad world. It's like if you buy a car from the dealership and then you drive it down the road and you wreck it. You don't take it back to the dealership and say, um, there's something wrong with my car. It's not going right. They're like, um, well, yeah, you wrecked it. Yeah, but you said it was a good car. "Uh, It was, but you wrecked it. Like, we're the people that are taking all of our problems to God and saying, God, what did you do? This thing is wrecked. It doesn't roll right. It doesn't run right. And God's saying, uh, yeah, you remember the garden? You chose you, and it's not working well. Yeah. See, we're driving cars that are completely broken, and we're mad at God because they're broken, and God says, it's not the car I gave you. Yeah. And the good news is it's not the car you're going to be left with. There's, there's a new car coming. There's a new creation coming where there will be justice that will roll down like the river's. And the oppressed will be liberated and the oppressors will get what's coming to them. Justice will happen. So yeah, the world is good even though, or God is good even though the world is bad. And our good God is not leaving the world bad. He's got a plan to redeem it through Christ. So now we're going to have 15 minutes of other thoughts. This is sort of how Solomon works. It's just his, his way of, of, of preaching this sermon. So we're going to preach sermon like he does. That was kind of like a main point. Hey, God is good even though the world is bad. Take that home. And now here's 15 minutes of just other things. Okay? It's not like how to, I, I love preaching like one theme, one, one takeaway. This is not Solomon. Uh, he's just like, here we go. Peyton's smiling. He's like, yeah, this is it. Here we go. All right? This is all the rabbit trails. Uh, problem number three is this. Good work comes from bad motives. Good work comes from bad motives. Let's just look in verse 4. Then I saw, so again, this is a new statement. Then I saw that all tool and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. So good work comes from bad motives. So just, I look and I see invention. I see skill. I see hard work. I see entrepreneurship. And you know what all of it's from? Not that I love my neighbor. It's that I'm jealous and envious and I want to beat my neighbor. See, the reason your Ford truck is so great is because there's a company called Chevy. Really? I mean, it'd still probably be like the same model it was. Like your Chevy would not be great if it weren't for Ford, right? Ford's not just like, ooh, every day let's, make, let's love our neighbors a little bit better. Every day they're like, let's beat Chevy because we want to sell more cars. So a lot of our like good things that we have, they really come from just competitiveness and we want to beat everybody. So I think our lesson is, hey, as Christians, that's not how we should work. We shouldn't work to produce and build and use our skills just to beat our neighbor. We should work and use our skills to love our neighbor, to produce good things, to help other people up, not just to beat the guy down the road or the girl down the road so that we can look better and have more stuff. So real angst in life. Hey, good things often come from bad motives. So you don't produce good things from bad motives. You produce good things from good motives. So that's kind of a problem with work. Now we're gonna get some life hacks. So these are things you can really like take home, like practical tactile things that you can take home. And you're like, where are we going now? I don't know. I'm just following Solomon, okay? We're just going with him. So here's life hack number one, and it's gonna be confined contentment in your work. Find contentment. In your work, notice verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So, so the opposite of like working to compete and beat so that you can just have everything, the opposite is like, I'm just going to do nothing. I'm just going to fold my hands and like play video games and maybe somebody will pay for my life. This is awesome. Like this is what I think life's about. I'm going to be lazy. I'm not going to do anything. And I'm just hoping that's all going to work out. And Solomon says, um, it's going to be fun for a little bit, but you're going to starve. You're eventually going to die. I mean, especially like his day, like if you didn't work, you don't eat, like you just die. So good luck with that. So don't be lazy and do nothing. But then the opposite is like, workaho- like being a workaholic. Because he says this in verse 6, Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after wind. So two handfuls of toil, it's like work, work, work. That's all you do. That's all you care about. That your whole life. And he says, you know what would be better? To have like one handful of quietness. I think that's contentment. To have one hand that's like, you know, I'm going to work hard and then I'm going to rest. I'm going to work hard and I'm going to like have a family and I'm going to like enjoy my life and I'm going to have some friendship. I'm not going to make work my whole life. I'm going to have a balance. So it's like the first like work-life balance. He could have wrote a book on this. He's like, this is, this is have contentment in your work. So a real takeaway is do you find contentment in your work? Is it your idol that you spend all of your time doing it and thinking about it? Or is it a good thing, but it's not a God thing? That You can actually have contentment. You can work, but also have joy. Life hack number two is cultivate friendship. This is going to be really important to Solomon. Cultivate friendship. So the first thing we're going to see is the Lone Ranger. So just picture the Lone Ranger riding into town with his horse, guns blazing. I don't need nobody. I'm independent. I'm my own man. You got the big hat, big boots, but you ride away into the woods by yourself. Just think about that. Here's what we see. Verse seven. Again, I saw under the sun one person has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So the verse is like the Lone Ranger guy. You're working like crazy, but you have uh, no son, you have no brother, you have no friend, you have no one to share it with. You're just like, it's just me. I'm an independent individual. I'm going to build my empire. I'm going to build my success. I don't need anybody else. This is like the American dream. Just do it on your own and get to the top, and then you're like, wow, nobody's here. Like, who do I high five? Like, yay, go me. Woohoo. Like, it's not that fun. That, that you, you need other people. You need to cultivate friendship. Like, again, you ride into the whore, you ride into town as a lone ranger, and then you ride out by yourself, and you're like on a campfire, cooking hot dogs by yourself. It's, you're telling stories to yourself. It's not that fun. It's romantic. It's heroic. But it leads to an empty life. So don't be the lone ranger. Instead, cultivate friendship, and we're going to see four reasons to cultivate friendship. Verse nine, the first one's going to be reward. Verse nine says this, two are better than one because they have good reward for their labor. So cultivate friendship, number one, because it is a reward. That when you do something together, that that two is better than one. That's kind of his main statement to cultivate friendship, cultivate community, cultivate family, cultivate people in your life. Guess what? You need people and people need you. You are not made for isolation. You are not made to live alone and to think alone and be alone with yourself. You are made for people. You are made for community. You need friendship. You need companionship. And he says, for one, it's a reward. Like if you work by yourself. Like teamwork is dream work, right? We want to work with teams. We want to be like where you can have celebration. And when you win at the end of the day, you have a group of people that you can celebrate with. If you don't have that people, your work is going to not be as as a reward as it could be. You need people to celebrate your successes and to celebrate life with you so that it becomes more meaningful because you are made for community. And it's not just work. This is all of life, to share life and community together. Number two, we see safety. Verse 10 says this, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and not has another to lift him up. It's like the beginning of OSHA. Like, don't get on a ladder by yourself. Like, have have a buddy hold the bottom of the ladder. Like, like it's it's a real principle. Don't do stuff on your own because if you fall, no one's there to pick you up. No one's there to help you. So do stuff in community with other people. Like, just in practical life, that's a good idea. But I think in a real spiritual way, you also need that in the community of people that you're around. You need people that are there that when you fall, you don't stay down. You need people that when you get hit, somebody comes alongside of you and encourages you and calls you out, rebukes you or um, befriends you, whatever you need to get you back up walking with the Lord Jesus. Jesus. See, as a Christian, you are going to have some bumps. You are going to fall down. You're going to have some mishaps. You're going to have some mistakes. And if you're by yourself, it will linger. But if you have a friend, if you have companions, they can lift you up. They can get you back where you need to go. So you need to cultivate friendship for safety in life and also in Jesus. Number three, for provision. Verse 11 says this, again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So Near Eastern culture, they're traveling. It got really cold at night. So if you're by yourself, you're probably going to die. Hypothermia, you need a buddy. We always go uh, camping once a year with the Boys Adventure Club with a new covenant. And I love it. And this year, only G got to spend all night because the other two had basketball games. And I told G it got really cold. I said, hey, G, I'm just going to let you know. Daddy's going to snuggle with you all night. He's like, What? You're going to do what with me? I said, yeah, I'm going to get cold and you're my electric blanket. So I'm going to snuggle you. So just, just warning, I'm going to snuggle you a lot. And he's like, okay. And then sure enough, guess what? I got a lot of snuggles because I'm cold. And guess what? I can't warm myself up, but he's like a little heater blanket. I'm like, yeah, that feels good. And I think he's like, okay, that does feel good. You know, it's like, yes, we, we warm each other up. Guess what? You as a human being can't warm yourself up. You know what you need? You need another human being with flesh and blood to warm you up. And not just physically, but think about spiritually. You can't always warm yourself. You're going to be cold. You're going to be apathetic. You're not going to follow Jesus. You're just going to want to give up. You need another human being in your life that's rubbing shoulders with you where their heat and their passion transfer to you, and you stay warm because of them. And guess what? They need your warmth as well. So provision and then lastly, we're going to see for protection. Verse 4, uh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 12 says this, or verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A three-cord is not quickly broken. So you also need it for pr- pr- protection. I and mean, there's going to be people who want to come get you. They're going to be after you. Think about nearest your culture. They're traveling places. There's going to be people that are going to try to steal and kill them. If you're alone, you're a target. If you have people around you, you have safety. You have somebody that's got your back. You have protection. And you as a believer, guess what? There is an evil one with fiery darts that wants to deploy them on you at all times. And you know what you need? You need a couple of people around you who can help fight off the enemy, who can help you fight the good fight so that you're not just alone swinging. Somebody has your back and you've got their back and you're in it together. That you're warring together So he's saying, don't be a Lone Ranger. Cultivate friendship because in friendship, even though, yeah, the world is broken, it's unjust, there's a lot of oppression, you know what you need? You need a good community. You need some good people to walk through life together. And our last life hack is number three, keep listening. It's kind of a strange story, but just stick with me. Verse 13 says this, "'Better was a poor and wise youth "'than an old and foolish king "'who no longer knew how to take advice.'" So the obvious answer is, okay, there's an old king who loses his palace because he forgot to take advice. There's a young, poor guy who actually gets a throne because he's wise and he listens and he takes advice. So just real practically, before we get any further, you need to be a person who continues to seek and to savor advice. Wisdom comes through your ears, not your mouth. Wisdom comes in your ears. You need to listen. You need to have counsel. You need to weigh other people in your life that are speaking truth to you. When you become your own truth in yourself, you are in trouble. Notice what happens to this king. Verse 14 For he, so this is the, the young, poor, wise, he went from prison to a throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. So he actually outdoes uh, the king because the king forgot to take advice. He forgot to listen. So this poor uh, young boy that's in prison, he actually takes the throne. Verse 15, I saw all the living that move under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Those who came later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after the wind. So So he tells this story. He's a story about there's this this young boy who's wise. And he starts out in prison. And though he's in prison, he works his way all the way up to the throne. And there is a king who's in the the palace, rightfully there. He's probably rich. He's old. And he forgets to take advice. And he ends up getting dethroned. And, And the point is, don't become like the old king. Don't stop listening to instruction. Don't stop being wise. Instead, be like the young, poor king. And I I couldn't help, I'm not saying Solomon meant this when he wrote this, but when I read this, there's a name that jumped out of my mind. Can you think of a guy in the biblical storyline who went from prison to a throne position in a kingdom and then did great things through God? It sounds like Joseph, right? It sounds like the story of Joseph. And I just want to think about, I'm not saying that Solomon meant this when he wrote this, but for me, a perfect illustration of this life practically happening out is the story of Joseph. And let's just connect all the dots together because Joseph, what was he? He was first a guy who was treated unjustly. I mean, his his brothers sold him into slavery. Talk about guys like, hey, uh, this pit's not fair, God. Yeah, life's not fair, Joseph, but just deal. He was treated unjustly. Then he faced what? Oppression. He is ridiculed. He is mislined. He is put in prison. He has to wait in prison. Like he is completely oppressed and completely unjust. But what does he do? He trusts the Lord. And from prison, he goes all the way to the throne and rules over Egypt. And saves all of God's people through Egypt. And you know what he says at the end? When his brothers say, hey, Joseph why don't you want to kill us? You know what he says? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, let's just think about all this and all that we've read. We're looking at the world. It's unjust. It's oppressed. There's all sorts of bad things happening. What do we do with that? Hey, what the world means for evil, often at me, guess what I can know? That just like Joseph, who was... Unjustly treated, he was oppressed, all this evil, guess what? Behind the scenes, God used it for good. In your life, when you're treated unjustly, when you are oppressed, however that looks, you can know what the, what the world means for evil, God means for good. And of course, we can jump right over to Joseph's older, 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 older brother, who is Jesus Christ, right? Who was obviously unjustly treated. He was falsely accused, put on a cross for crimes he didn't commit. He was the ultimate example of a person oppressed. But as they killed him in unjust and oppression, what they meant for evil, God did what? God meant for good. That through that act of injustice and oppression, he saved the world. So what do we do with that? See, we can look to to these examples. We can look to these guys who were that person that felt the weight of the world and the wrong of the world. And you know what? They stood the course. And they believe God is good even though the world is bad. And as we understand our world that we live in, yeah, the world is bad, but guess what? God's still good. And know that in God's goodness, he's got a day of judgment coming. And you know what? You can rest in that. And right now you can know that whatever happens to you that's evil, God can actually turn it around for good. And see, the last of the story that Solomon tells us about, he's kind of mad because that young boy who became king, he's soon forgotten. So Solomon said, it's all vanity. Why even try? Why even be wise? Why even listen? You're going to die and you're going to be forgotten. And I want to answer it this way that the only way that story is vanity in the case of Joseph is if Joseph is the hero. See, if Joseph is the hero of that story, then it's all vanity because he did all this and then he dies. And guess what? The next Pharaoh forgot Joseph and enslaved his people. But the point is, Joseph was never the hero, he's not the hero. God is the hero, and God is always the hero. And if you will remember that in your little story, God is the hero, and he's always been the hero, then no matter what happens to you, oppression or injustice, you know what you can do? You can point to him and know that he's got this, and he is working all things together for his good. And this is not the way the world is gonna be forever, that he's bringing redemption. He's bringing something new. And in the midst of that, Let's be the people who work for justice and who work for those who are oppressed because we know that's not how the kingdom is going to be. Let's pray together. Father, we love you so much. We thank you so much for Christ, our great example, our great substitute. God, we thank you. And I pray that if anyone's not in him, they would repent and believe in the gospel, that he would become the hero of their story, that for repentance and faith, the injustice and, impression that, and the oppression that fell on Jesus, we would know that that was for us and that we'd be made new in his life, death, and resurrection. Father, help us to take these truths and live them out this week. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. You're listening to audio from Hardened Baptist Church. For more audio content or other information about our church, please visit hardenedbaptist.org